What is up, Recovery Family? Welcome to a special edition of Unashamed Recovery Podcast. I, for today, am your host, Palmer. And I will explain exactly why I'm here and Josh and Drew are not in just a second. But what I want to say first is, here at Unashamed Recovery, we believe there is healing in the story of our scars and that it's okay to not be okay. It is our mission to break the shame and stigma of addiction and recovery by sharing real stories of real addiction from real people in real recovery and real sobriety. Today we are joined by John Gallagher, a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show and our family and Josh and Drew. And uh, say what's up, John. Hello there. Before we get started, let me go ahead and say that the other day, Josh, Drew, John, myself, and even Eddie Poole sat down and we recorded an amazing version of this podcast. And instead of that being released, we are re-recording because I, the audio engineer, (laughs) messed it all up. So, (laughs) All is forgiven. Josh is out on vacation. Drew is working. And it was his anniversary this, uh, this weekend as well. So he's spending time with the wife while he's not working. And so I figured so that we have an episode to share that we might as well just me and you sit down and we'll rehash out your story. Amen. But before we do, I guess we'll roll that intro. The Unashamed Recovery Podcast. Unashamed Recovery Podcast with Josh and Drew starts now. Hi, welcome back. So, John Gallagher. Yes, sir. Man, I have known you for a little bit, and I can always say that, one, you give the best hugs. Thank you. And two, you obviously love the Lord with all your heart. All my heart. Right now, we are sitting at our home church, The Point. Woohoo! And we are just, uh, we're going to tell a little bit about your story. About the hugs. I gave up that thug life, now I'm about that hug life, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's a hug dealer. Hold on, real quick, let me just say, I know that you have battled some some issues. Mm-hmm. We'll call them issues mm-hmm. in your life. But I know that I know demons, but yeah. I know that God has overcome those issues for you. Absolutely. And so what I want you to do for our listeners, just like we did the other night, is I want you to take me back to chapter one. Now, I don't want to go all the way back to the beginning of conception. <laughs> As Josh said, what is chapter one of your addiction story? What is chapter one of your recovery story? Tell our listeners where it all started, what what you went through, what you started with. Well, I, I grew up in a uh, upper middle class family. You know, I was, I was loved, successful father. He had a hunting and fishing television show and radio show. And my mother ran the American Heart Association. So, but my father was gone a lot of my childhood. So I had my grandfather and my uncle were my two main father figures in my life. Now, I love them very much with all my heart, but they were both alcoholics. And um, at, at about the age of 12 years old, I started uh, drinking with uh, with both of them. That's where it really all began. Almost all the men, not just my uncle and my grandfather, were alcoholics. But uh, turned out that the years that my father were was traveling all over the country and certain parts of the world, he wasn't drinking at home. He was drinking you know, why he wasn't at home, why he was out of town recording and doing all that. So for all those years that uh, my father was gone, 
uh, I was pretty much just left on my own, you know, to make my own decisions with my grandfather and my uncle. I worked with my uncle and I was with my grandfather almost all the time. So that's really where it all began with uh, addiction and generational curses. So so let me real quick, let me just ask, uh, because Drew asked this and I thought it was a perfect question the other day. And so I don't want to I don't want to leave that out. Okay. Do you feel like because you didn't have a father figure in your house, do you feel like that's help start you down that road i know for drew he said that that pretty much i mean not having a father figure in his house kind of put him on the path of addiction and what he's not blaming his father or anything like Mm -hmm. that but he's he was just saying that that kind of helped lead him to the road of uh, of drugs and alcohol and and whatever his addictions were do you feel like not having a father figure in your house at all times contributed to your addiction no not really because throughout my life in the in the three decades that I walked in darkness, didn't matter where I was. I lived all over the country and was around a lot of different type of people. And I always felt out of place. So I would, like a chameleon, I would conform to the way they talk, the way they dress, the drugs they used. And as far as the drugs they used, if you if you liked it, I loved it. So, you know, at, at one point in time, I wasn't just an alcoholic, but I was on pain pills. And another point in time, it would be cocaine. And another point in time, it would, would have been crack, ecstasy, just, you know, whatever it was available, that's, you know, what I did. So, so we don't want to glamor- glamorize, I guess. We don't mm-hmm. want to glamorize, you know, what the things that you took or anything like that. That's mm-hmm. not, that's definitely not what we're here, for, here mm-hmm. for. And that's, I know, I know John's heart. That's not what he's trying to say. Um, I, I would like to know, because I don't believe we, we discussed this the last time. So it started with alcohol. What was the next one in, in line? You know, we talked about how most of us try marijuana mm-hmm. and that's, uh, for some people that's a, the gateway to, you know, heavier drugs or anything like that. I know you said that marijuana was never uh anything that you really liked but what was the next step you you started with alcohol because that was kind of a generational curse um your family did it your you know your your father and your uncle and all them they they drank and so that was kind of a the beginning for you what was next what was the next step i would say it was uh pills it was pills after that and then followed that up with uh cocaine uh, methamphetamine after that ecstasy anything that was like um was more of an upper or uh, I, or even the even the downers as far as pills went as far as marijuana was i just uh that it just made me way too paranoid i i i enjoyed i got hooked on selling marijuana uh, right out of high school it was uh, it was the harder drugs for me that i liked the yeah. first time you told me that really made me laugh yeah because uh, <laughs> right. marijuana is usually the one that everybody's like i'm the least paranoid on. <laughs> exactly and, it's got and, an opposite and john me. had the opposite effect yeah. of like he was telling me that um basically you know anytime he ever did marijuana it'd be the, the that'd be the one time he'd start <laughs> looking out the window trying right. to see see who's uh who's trying to stab him yeah, in the it, back or who's coming down the road yeah it's weird because like for most people uh, you know, like you said, it's marijuana that doesn't do that. Well, for me, uh, you know, like most people on methamphetamine, you, you see them peeking out blinds and peeking out the door and, and you know, things that people after them. That was from marijuana for me. Uh, it was actually the opposite, not just for marijuana, but for methamphetamine, because when I would use methamphetamines, uh, it would really kind of calm me. I, I could eat. I could lay down and go to sleep if I wanted to. I usually didn't want to. I mean, there were periods where, you know, I would be up for two weeks and think I was just like we are right now, just perfectly normal, but you're not. But you know. So so tell me, why pills? So we go from drinking to pills. We're, we're going to pills. So like, how, how did you get 
hooked on on pills like why were you taking pills to begin with was it i got hurt no. was it uh that, adhd or how did we get two pills like uh, did you just find them in in mom's purse and was like hey this would be cool like tell our listeners like because i want everybody to know sure the full story so we won't go through every drug and mm-hmm. how we got there but i, I kind of want everybody to know like okay we started with alcohol then we went to pills but why did we go to pills it wasn't pain pills at uh at first it was uh that didn't come till much later with the pain pills it was more like xanax valium clonopin things like that uh downers it was available and i love i mean i loved them at first it was really kind of like sleep i, I really always kind of struggled with sleep you know i'd stay up all night reading or you know i'd kind of insomnia and um, I found that those type, like when I was ready to go to sleep, I could take one of those and I'd sleep like a baby. And then it, then, um, it became more prevalent to where I was, I was taking it in social situations and, and then not remembering the next day what I did the night before until somebody told me, which was kind of weird because, well, if I didn't remember it, like, oh, I can't believe you did that last night. Like, did what? And then they would tell me and I would be like, well, I don't remember it, so it didn't happen. Yeah, so. Can't believe you did that. No, <laughs> Me neither. Well, I, I can't either. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't there, <laughs> literally. So, all right. So, we've we've established we obviously have an addictive personality. Absolutely. So we, we've established. Okay, I liked alcohol. Loved it. Started to love it. Mm-hmm. I liked pills. Loved it. Loved them. So then we moved on to like like a, like you've already mentioned meth, mm-hmm. cocaine, mm-hmm. crack. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of all of this drug addiction is kind of just heading down a road, just getting deeper and deeper. Absolutely. So now let's take our listeners to the the pit. Okay. So let's let's fast forward to where where were you when you got to the point to where Jesus radically changed your life? Because I love this part of your story, and I know our listeners need to hear it. So I know. That when when Jesus finally radically changed your life, you'd already lost mom, mm-hmm. you lost dad, mm-hmm. you lost your sister, yeah. and so we we have a lot of death in our story today. And so let's start with the loss. Okay, so my mother battled cancer most of my life. The first time that she was diagnosed was when I was about fifteen, and she beat it, and uh, it just re- kept coming back. Uh, you know, and he's, I would say probably about five year intervals or so. In that time, uh, my father uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and it took him pretty quick. It took him within, I think, about six months or so. It, it didn't take long at all. And uh, he was gone not long, just a couple years after that, mother was gone. That really kind of uh, fed my addiction. You know, uh, that, that's how I coped with it. I didn't want to feel that. I didn't, I didn't want to feel that pain. I just didn't want to go through it. So I numbed it. You know, I, I numbed all that with, with the drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I, I was a fully high-functioning addict. I could, I would, uh, I would use before work, uh, you know, even if I'd been up all night, I'd, I'd use more. If I'd, got, if I'd got some sleep, I would use more. And then it progressed, and it just, it was my crutch, I guess you'd say. So that's how I didn't just deal with death. That's how I dealt with everything. What happened was I developed this heart of stone. Like I just didn't, I didn't care. So I never went through that grief of, uh, of, of loss. Or, you know, I was in a relationship uh, for uh, about 12 or 13 years. Um, because of the addiction, I wrecked that relationship. I, it affected, uh, you know, not just her per se. It was also her, her kids. She has three children. You know, I'd known them since they were toddlers, and um, you know, had a hand, you know, pretty much had a hand in raising them. So, in a nutshell, every bridge I walked across, I poured gasoline on everything I loved, and we just watched it burn. You know, it all came tumbling down around me, and uh, next thing I know, 
all, all I had left really family-wise or anybody that cared about me was my little sister. You would have to know us, you know, to be around us to understand. We were almost like twins. We were two years apart. We looked so much alike that people thought we were twins. Amanda was beautiful. I, she was just amazing. But uh, she, I'd gotten arrested in Hattiesburg. At that point, uh, we went about, I guess, about six to eight months or so, almost a year without seeing each other. And by the time I got out, I, she had, she was the only uh, home I would have had. I, I went to her, and she, at this point, she was a full-fledged heroin addict. She was shooting heroin. Me being with the addictive personality I have and how I can form like a chameleon, ended up ultimately picking that up. One night, we were uh, all sitting around. It was just me and her and the guy she was seeing at the time. I was not shooting that day, but uh, I was witnessing my first overdose. And it was, uh, it didn't freak me out. It didn't freak her out. We knew exactly what to do because my father was on an episode of Rescue 911 when we were very young. And what that was, it was a show that featured uh, these rescues. It was broadcast. Uh, he had seen a, a guy going down McDowell Road, slumped over in his uh, Lincoln town car. It was a, back in the 80s. So, you know, he was in a suburban so he could see down into the vehicle. And he uh, had to pull ahead of him to keep him from rolling into Terry Road, uh, into oncoming traffic and all that. And he, uh, they were able to get the car stopped and he got the fella out and um, gave him mouth to mouth and uh, saved his life. And me and my sister saw this, you know, a thousand times. So we knew exactly what to do. So I was doing, um, she was doing compressions and I was doing uh, CPR and uh, we got him back. I mean, I'm, this dude was graveyard dead. He blew no pulse. I mean, it, it was like that. And so that was the first time I witnessed an OD. And then after that, I got worse on heroin. I didn't even know the fentanyl was in the stuff. So every time that there was fentanyl in the heroin that I was using, I would OD. And my sister by herself would have to resuscitate me. And one time she had, uh, she got me back. And I guess this particular time really upset her because she almost didn't get me back. And I think she had, uh, broke a couple of ribs in my and uh she was hitting me so hard and she was crying you know i was like what what is it i mean i'm i'm sorry you know what's wrong and she was like i can't do this anymore I mean, I'm, I'm i'm scared to death you're gonna die and i can't lose you and you know for me to hear my little sister say this to me it really it really hit me so i agreed to go to rehab but only if she would detox off of the heroin and fentanyl also i would go and uh so it took about two weeks to get her, me and her, we did just detoxed each other, really. It wasn't as bad for me as it was for her. You know, I, at one point I thought she was going to die. You know, and she, I, I heard noises come out of her that you wouldn't hear come out of a dying animal. And, uh, you know, it took a couple of weeks and she powered through it and she meant she was going to do it. But the only other thing I asked of her was that she wouldn't be around the guy that particular guy that was ODing that one because I knew if he came the heroin the fentanyl would come with him and it's like a package deal between yeah, between with, them two right you know yeah. like maybe he didn't he didn't necessarily cause her to get on it I don't I don't know I, I guess you could answer to that but but either way at that point they're both doing heroin mm -hmm. and so you knew for everybody to be clean as far as you and her go he he couldn't be around no there's no way because I, I knew that she would she would break. If, uh, so she had cut, it wasn't just him, it was all, all ties to anybody that she knew or I knew that was using the heroin and the fentanyl. Right. And, you know, so I went into my program, or I was 27 days into it, and uh, I was thriving. I was doing good. I was happy in my sobriety. You know, I was, I was at Region 8. I was eating good. I was putting on weight. Uh, I was talking to her about once or twice a week, and she was good. Everybody I talked to 
uh, that had been around her, you know, man, she's, she's doing great. You know, she was still using meth, but she was not using heroin and fentanyl, and that's what was the most important thing to me. Well, about 27 days into it, uh, the uh, administrator came to me and told me, and as soon as he was walking toward me, I already knew in my spirit that she was gone. And uh, he told me I needed to go to the office and, and uh, make a phone call. And we went in there and sat down. I, I talked to my best friend, Jenny, uh, which is actually the girl that I w was in a relationship with for those many years. And she broke the news to me. And, you know, she told me all the details that she had. And, and I immediately had no emotion about it. I, I went back. I reverted back into, you know, you got fight or flight mode and, like, the hardest stone. I just... It, it, I had no, no emotion whatsoever about it, but the only thing on my mind was to leave and go get high. And um, instead of running to Jesus like I should have, I, I ran straight back to the dope man and um, immediately started getting high. At the same time, I was having to figure out what I was going to do about Amanda. And uh, I started getting details about what had actually happened and where she was at when it happened. It turned out that the guy that her and I helped resuscitate and get back to... Uh, the land of living was there. He bailed, didn't even try, from what I understand, to uh, help her. More details came pouring in, and I saw text messages and things that between him and some other people, and found out from the coroner that she had uh, she had been dead about 12 hours or so before they had even called for uh, AMR and all that. So I believe, you know, that she would have had a fighting chance, you know. Um, so I held a lot of resentment toward that, and uh, it took me a long time to let that go because, uh, you yeah, I understand, you know, I helped, um, if, if not for me and my sister and the Holy Spirit, you know, this guy would have died right in front of us. You know, what if I would have uh, just threw my hands up and freaked out and left, you know? So let me stop you right there and let me ask. At this point, do you know about God? Do you, like, grow up in church? Yes. As a matter of fact, I've known that there is a God in and I've believed in Jesus all this time. I mean, since I was a small child. I mean, just I, not walking with him, not exactly. having okay, running away from him. Running really, away. I mean, talking about full rebellion for thirty something years. You know, right. Uh, looking back on it now, I, I can see. Actually, I, I'd been praying at one point uh, at, um, while I was in prison. You know, to show me in my life. You know, where you had your hand on me in my favor. Turns out, it was my whole life. But he gave me glimpses of, of uh, times that that he uh, that he had sent angels to minister to me that I ignored and um, you know so I know you just said that uh, talking about you being in prison I know we hadn't got yeah, there we hadn't got, hadn't got there, there yeah, yet yeah, right, right but that, I mean I just there's a lot of people that we talk to that that Josh and drew talked to and that I've talked to being around the recovery community that did not even know or at least did not believe that there was a higher power that there's a god yeah. there's a jesus christ so that was kind of my question of like yeah. I, okay i was did, just ignoring him is what i was doing you my, knew for you a know. fact but you were just ignoring mm -hmm. okay. and, and i'll get to that um another thing uh you know with this heart heart of stone i was carrying with me was like uh, you know i i came out of rehab i didn't have a dime in my pocket i had no family to call no friends you know there were the the trap house people but they don't love you, you know, them drugs don't love you, but that's, right. that's really all I cared about was just, you know, getting high, really, and uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do about my sister's death as far as uh, burying her or um, cremating her, whatever we had to do, so I had no money, so 
Somebody told me to do a Facebook fundraiser or whatever those things are called. So I started one. You know, it was doing pretty good. It, it got up to about $1,000 or so. And uh, I'd been in communication with um, my sister's son, Jacob. You know, he was, uh, I think he was 17 at the time. But he, um, so I told him, you know, I've already raised up this much and $1,000 or whatever. Well, a couple of uh, Amanda's friends had come to me and knew my situation and, you know, had convinced me that, you know, if you take this thousand dollars, you know, we can get a few couple ounces of dope or whatever, we can flip it and, uh, you know, then we'll have three thousand dollars. You know, you have plenty of money to take care of your sister and you can probably get you somewhere to stay. You know, as high as I was, it sounded like a great idea. So we we did that. I drew out all the money and uh, did that. And we went and got a hotel room in Jackson and didn't make a dime. Not even, I mean, all of it got, if there, if there wasn't any money made, I never saw any of it. And then when it was all used up and gone, um, there I was. I was left alone, pretty much, with no money again. And now I had to call my nephew, because he had been keeping up with this on Facebook, and had to tell him what I had done and what had happened. And I was honest with him. I was up front. I told him what had happened, and he was so angry. You know, All this fell onto a 17-year-old child to handle, and him and his aunt took care of it. And... I wasn't even invited to the memorial they had at the reservoir, which, so rightly so, nobody wanted to see me for, because of that. And I understood. But uh, here I am on the streets of Jackson, going from trap house to trap house. And God really kind of, I, I mean, I could, feel, I could feel something, you know, like, like he was speaking to me through, through music, through, through uh, you know, while I was walking around, I'd see signs. People would talk to me, you know, on the street. And I felt like that I, he was talking to me through them. Like he was, it was almost like I was being guided in a way. Then I ended up, uh, this went on for a couple of months or so. Here I am, kind of, you know, I'm still ignoring, but uh, like I told you, Palmer, I mean, I've always known there was a God. I've always known that Jesus walked the earth, and I've always known and believed that he was resurrected. And, um, and you know, so I'm at a, a friend took me in. She li uh, lived over there in, uh, in Florence, and uh, she had this patch of woods behind her house and I would go out there and just be alone and I come up on this uh laid down tree that was in front of this huge dead oak tree and I would talk to God but I wouldn't talk to him I was really just kind of complaining and how could you do this how could you take everything from me you know leave me like this and and uh like you know I as a child you know I'd heard all the stories you know Jonah and the whale and all that but I never really delved into the Bible or anything like that but I didn't really know how, how to pray. I was just talking, uh, complaining and griping. And, you know, this big, huge dead oak tree was in front of me. And the center of it was pretty much hollowed out. And uh, I crawled into the, inside this tree and I could literally stand inside of it. I crawled back out of it and I looked at this tree and I, I and I made the decision that I was going to end my life in the, inside this tree. I started digging out the center of this tree, uh, everything that was in the middle. And I stationed all this dirt and it was kind of on a hilly area. So that when it rained, what I was going to do is I was going to crawl into the tree. I was going to take the biggest shot of heroin or fentanyl, whatever I could find in my life. And then when it rained, the water would push all the dirt inside and not that anybody would be looking for me or anybody cared, but nobody would ever find me. I'll uh, say this too. You know, I haven't said this, but, uh, you know, at this, you know, I have a, at this point, I have a daughter, and she's um, 13 or 14 years old, and I hadn't seen her in a couple of years because of my addiction. Throughout all that, walking the streets of Jackson and, and being, going through all that, I thought about her a lot. I got it in my head that, you know, she'd be better off without me. The reason I decided to do it that way, so it's like, if, if nobody found me, then she wouldn't have known 
what I'd done or how I'd done it, she would just think I was okay somewhere or whatever. As a matter of fact, um, on the way to, I mean, I already set up um, a way to get the heroin. I had my friend, she was taking me to my storage unit to um, drop me off and um, he was gonna come over. I decided that I was gonna write two letters. I was gonna write one to my best friend, Jenny, uh, and one to my daughter. The one, you know, the letters were just gonna be full of lies. Uh, basically in a nutshell, you know, for my daughter, I was gonna uh, say, you know, I'm, I love you, I'm proud of you, but you're better off without me. I'm good, don't look for me. Pretty much the same to Jenny too. She was the only one that I'd had any communication with since Amanda had died, really, that, you know, I was able, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to salvage that relationship with her because as bad as I hurt her, um, and ended, uh, the way our relationship ended, you know, she forgave me, welcomed me back into her life, not the way that I wanted, but, you know, she'd already moved, she moved on, she'd uh, uh, found somebody else, and she had taken me in at one point while I was on the street, but it just made things worse because I was having to see her with another man, and, you know, they just that was on top of Amanda dying, and that, you know, that was pretty much the straws that broke me, really. I just wanted to die. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like even, I mean, who's 43 years old and uh, can start their life over from scratch and prosper, you know? It's like I've lived my life, and I, nobody cared about me, so I didn't care. Right. And um, I felt no love from any direction, from anywhere, you know? And uh, so I, I was going to write the letters. On the way to uh, meet this guy, we stopped at the store. And mind you, my, uh, my friend had no idea any of this was going on. She just thought I needed to get some stuff out of my storage unit. Well, one thing I did, to, <laughs> this was kind of weird and crazy, but I was high, was uh, I just happened to have my dad's ashes with me. Um, over, because some of my stuff was over at her house, and I took those ashes, and I uh, took them out to this tree, and I dumped them in the center of this tree. In a way, I would be, you know, kind of like buried, buried with, my with your father, dad. you know. Um, so all my ashes were in this tree. Uh, my father's ashes were in this tree, and I even took a framed picture of my sister and my nephew Jacob, and had it stationed inside the tree. It would be in there too, and uh, it was like it was like this ritual or something. You know, at least I would be with some some people that I loved and cared about and missed. So I'm on my way to get the heroin. We stopped at this gas station, and uh, there's this young lady in front of me, and she looked almost identical to my daughter, about the same age, maybe a little older because she was driving. In a way, in my mind, I thought, maybe, maybe this is God giving me a chance to say goodbye to my daughter, you know? And uh, without saying bye to her, it, you know, gave me a little closure and a little peace, you know, whatever, but... Um, so I'm cutting up with her, and we're kind of laughing, and, and um, you know, she pays for her stuff, and um, she leaves up out of the store, and uh, I realize there's this backpack next to me. I happened to look over my shoulder, and she was out there. She was rooting around in her car like she was looking for something, so I, in my mind, thought, well, you know, maybe this backpack's hers, and she left it in here, so. So I take the backpack out to her, and, and I was like, hey, did you leave this in the store? And she was like, oh, no, no, it's, it's not mine. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, you know, got into another conversation with her. Um, I saw that my friend was ready to go. She was in the car. So me being homeless, I'm used to having a backpack at all times or even two or three or four, you know, you don't have much. So uh, I just hop off in the car. We get a little ways down 49 and I realized that I have this backpack that doesn't belong to me. I told my friend, I was like, I got to take this back, you know, <laughs> I'm no thief, you know. Um, she's like, well, we can just drop it off on the way back, you know, after I pick you up. And I was like, okay, sure, you know, it's fine, you know. But at the same time, I really didn't care because I wasn't going to be on the earth the next day anyway. So I never looked in this backpack. <clears throat> so we get to the storage unit, and I get out, and I 
get the backpack w along with me. I should have just left it in the car, but I mean, I don't guess it would have mattered. I guess I was there about 20 minutes and then Pearl and Rich Richland swarmed me about five deep and come out guns drawn and then like I'd done murdered somebody or robbed a bank. My first thought was uh, they think I'm breaking into the storage unit. And I'm like, no, 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 it's my storage unit, you know? And um, then my second thought was, oh my God, what's in this backpack? There must be drugs or something in there. So turns out it was about the backpack, but what, uh, I didn't find out till much later what was even in it. It was an iPad mini and a receipt printer thing for a Red Bull rep that was dropping off his his order the store you know the red bull from the store right so this red bull uh rep he's he's just doing his job yeah, he, he leaves his backpack on the, on the thing and as weird as it sounds you really were trying to do something good you thought it was the girl's backpack <laughs> yeah. so you're going to give the backpack to the girl come to find out it's not her backpack and mistakenly you take it with you yeah pd obviously realizes uh, what has happened somehow, you know, figures out where y'all are, where you've gone or oh, whatnot. Well, you you got to understand, this is an iPad mini that is probably powered on. So it probably wasn't hard to find. <laughs> but they you find know. you at the storage unit. They draw their guns. Yeah. They're, you know, it, it, in their eyes, you did this on purpose. Yeah, they right? think I stole the uh, this stuff on purpose. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So here you are. You have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. Didn't Didn't know, like, look, it was truly... Truly, and I'm high, right? But, but it truly was a mistake. Like I didn't really mean. I was just trying to help out. They however, weren't hearing it. However, you are high, and you're in possession, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, thankfully, um, I I just I had some methamphetamine on me when I got there, but thankfully I had taken it out of my pocket and I hid it in my storage unit. And I think that was a move on the hills from the Holy Spirit because it didn't want me to catch that charge because I'd already had a charge from Lamar County that I was on probation for for. A methamphetamine charges I got arrested for in Hattiesburg. All right, so they they handcuff you. Oh yeah, they're taking you to jail. Oh yeah, they right? they transport me to Richland. All right, hold on. Okay, so they handcuff you, they take you to jail, and we're gonna get into the best part of the story. But first, let me go ahead and take an ad break. Okay, let's pay some bills. Yeah, as the radio people like to say, let's take an ad break. We'll be right back with with John's the rest of John's story. Unashamed Recovery Podcast is heard around the world in over 42 countries, including over 780 cities in the United States. People around the world are hearing the message of hope of recovery from addiction, and that's because of listeners like you who donate, but also because of our sponsors. Local sponsors like D's Automotive in Meridian, Mississippi, serving the East Central Mississippi and West Alabama areas for over 42 years. D's is a name you can trust when it comes to your vehicle. For all your complete car needs and service in towing and car locks, that's D's Automotive. Go by and see Miss Jeannie, Mike, and the boys at 5024 Poplar Springs Drive. That's 5024 Poplar Springs Drive in Meridian, Mississippi. Or give them a call at 601-482-1800. That's 601-482-1800. And tell them that Josh and Drew sent you. Unashamed Recovery is also sponsored internationally by Sober Life Love, a sober dating site made for the sober community. Are you tired of the dating scene revolving around alcohol and drugs? Do you want to find someone who shares your commitment to a sober lifestyle? Look no further than SoberLife.love. The Sober Life Love platform is specifically designed for individuals who are sober and seeking a partner who shares in their same values. 
Whether you're in recovery, prefer not to drink, or simply choose to live a sober lifestyle, we provide a safe and supportive community for you to connect with like-minded individuals. With our advanced matching algorithms, you can find compatible partners who understand your journey and respect your choices. From sober activities to meaningful conversations, our dating service offers a variety of ways to connect and build relations. Soberlife.love is the new way to connect with people who understand and support your journey. Join today for free at www.soberlife.love. That's www.soberlife.love. Now back to your normally scheduled program right here on Unashamed Recovery Podcast. All right, John, we're back, and you were just telling us about how you had gone to the storage unit, you had, you know, substance in your pockets uh, that you had just discarded that you got rid of thank thank you jesus not going to catch another charge but they came after you for the 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 uh the backpack, the backpack so yeah. we're definitely heading to jail we're definitely going to jail they were not hearing anything i had to say about you know it was an accident or anything like that it was it was a uh, straight to jail and um so i'm at this point now, I'm at uh, I'm in the holding cell at Richland, and this is where God really got involved, and uh, because I knew I knew in my mind the whole way over to Richland that God had His hand all over this to keep me from committing suicide, and it made me angry because I did not want to be on this earth any longer. Like I said, I didn't have I didn't have any family left. I didn't have Jenny. I didn't have my daughter. I had no friends. I had nobody. I was alone in the world. And so I'm in the I'm in the holding cell. I just start screaming and cussing God for everything that he that in my mind he was worth. I maybe thought in my mind that maybe I had died and this was my hell, you know. But um but then it happened. This this is the, the encounter and uh and it's exactly what I needed because I, I was feeling no love. And uh, so I'm literally forced to my knees, not by my own power, but by higher power. Like I did not choose to get on my knees. Like I was forced to my knees, face to the concrete. And, and I started just bawling. Like it, it was coming out of my nose, my mouth, my eyes. And I felt the presence. And it was the first time I'd really ever felt the presence. And I'd, you gotta understand, I hadn't felt love in years, it seemed. And in that moment, I felt like arms around me, like a hug. And, and at this point, I don't think I'd even had a hug from anybody since the last time I think I'd seen Amanda, which had been quite some time, months. But before that, you know, it was, you know, it was like being hugged by your mother, your father, your, everybody you've ever loved and cared about in your life and it's cared about you all at one time and as I'm as, as all this fluid is coming out of my face I can feel it's all it's like I, I was feeling the all the yucky guck black gooey stuff just coming out with it the, I mean it was stinging you know my eyes it was it was like sin was just flowing right up out of me and like I, and and I didn't know this till later but I was being delivered most heroin addicts and, and, and methamphetamine addicts and alcoholics, and there is some kind of detox that you go through. It's painful, it's sick, 
you, you get sick, and it's horrible. I witnessed my sister go through it, and she was sick the whole time. And I even got sick that time when, when we were detoxing. But, so, when they picked me up off the floor, the, the guy, uh, the officer that was there, he had to help me up. There was enough fluid, tears, all that gooey stuff on the floor. You could have mopped up with a beach towel, and it probably would have, I mean, it would have been soaked. And when I left out of Richland Police Department on my way to Rankin County Jail, I was smiling. And uh, because I, 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 I'd experienced Jesus' love. And there was no other thing, no drug, no high that could compare to it. And uh, Do you think you knew that right then? No. I didn't know. I knew something. You knew something had just happened. It had yeah. been absolutely amazing. You, yes. All of this stuff had just come pouring out of you. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you still don't know for sure that that's, that was yeah. Jesus giving you the encounter that you needed. And I didn't understand it. And, and I didn't understand why I was smiling because I was on my way to jail. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'd been in and out of jail for, for uh, uh, you know, since I was a teenager for mostly all misdemeanor stuff. You know, it was never, ever a pleasant experience. and um, Nothing to smile about. Yeah, nothing to smile about. But, I mean, I was literally, I mean, it, I was joyful. You know, I was I was high, but I wasn't high. You know, I wasn't high on, on meth or anything. I mean, I was on a different high, and I didn't understand it. So, at this point, I, I don't know how long I'd been awake, but by, when we got to uh, Rankin County Jail, they put me in the holding cell there. And I didn't know this at the time either, but, you know, the Holy Spirit came with me, and they really took care of me and let me stay in that holding cell for three days and let me sleep. And I think... Drew, when I told this last time, the first time I recorded, Drew piped in and said, oh, you were in your tomb. Yeah, you were in your tomb for three days. Three days. And when I woke up after those three days, you know, they had given me two mats. Dimitri over there, he had given me two mats, a couple blankets, and I had like several boxes of food next to me for when I woke up. uh, Left over, you know, they were, I mean, it was like the Holy Spirit moved in there, and they didn't, you know, mistreat me or anything. They weren't mean to me, like, some places are when you get arrested and, and when I when I arose <laughs> when I woke up um, I walked to the to the intercom and I pressed it and Dimitri you know he's he's a really funny guy he's like uh, you know welcome back to the land of living you know <laughs> and I'm like he come in there and talked to me and uh, this was in COVID time my uh, you know he was like all right so we're, uh, I gotta take you back there you know you're gonna have to you're gonna uh, in COVID time they can't just put you in the general population because you got to wait a week. Where they took me back, when they took me back, I was in I was in a cell by myself, and all the other guys in this zone that were in cells, they were with somebody else. You know, there was another person there with me, but the whole time I was alone for the whole week, which is the way God wanted it because He wanted time with me. He wanted to really kind of explain to me, in a way, you know, He wanted me to talk to Him. I'm sure you went on you to listen too. And listen, yes, absolutely. And so I kept asking for a Bible, and you know, the only contact you have is through when they bring your food or when they bring you a towel or whatever. And they really don't talk to you at all. They just open the thing and put what they're putting in there, and they go about their way with that trustee or whatever. So this is something that's really kind of supernatural that happened. The first thing I've really ever witnessed since that had happened. My cell was fairly clean you know it was clean it was new there was nothing on the walls you know no scribble marks no you know so and so was here and blah 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 and all that you know with with sharpies and all that so i wanted to pray but i didn't know what to pray 
And um, so I kept asking God, he's like, you know, help me pray. You know, what? I don't know what to say to you, and you know, I don't understand what happened. And I was alone in th at this point, too, but I felt like I wasn't alone, you know. So about the third or fourth day into that, I woke up one day, and I didn't know how this had happened, but in black Sharpie ink on my wall that I know wasn't there before was uh, from a psalm. It was Psalm 69. And it was uh, only the first couple of verses. It says, God, my God, come and save me. These floods of trouble have risen higher and higher. The water is up to my neck. I'm sinking into the mud with no place to stand. And that's exactly how I felt, you know, in all that time uh, of being homeless and you no know, friends and family being gone and dead and all that. Um, and I'm about to drown in this storm. I'm weary exhausted with weeping my throat is dry my voice is gone my eyes are swollen with sorrow and i'm waiting for you god to come through for me i can't even count all those who hate me for no reason many influential men want to want me silenced and i think that's all that was on the wall uh but it was a diff this is the passion translation it was actually just the niv translation i didn't know how that it got there i, I know nobody walked in there and did it while i was asleep i know i didn't do it and I knew I was alone. There wasn't another human, but it was hard for me to comprehend. It isn't now, but it was then. So, so I was charged with grand larceny, and uh, when I went to uh, uh, my hearing, the uh, the amount was like $1,075. So if it was $76 less, I would have been charged with a misdemeanor. Right. So my public defender really kind of fought for that, you know, for them to drop it like that so I could get another misdemeanor, but the Holy Spirit didn't want that because the Holy Spirit wanted me in prison. And I know that now. You know, it, it, uh, God was setting me down for uh, training purposes. All those decades of walking in darkness and dancing with the devil, and now I'm in a prison situation where drugs are flooded. In, I mean, this is, I'm going past the Rankin County stuff. Now I'm in quick bed, I'm in, I'm in an actual prison. You know, uh, that months, months later, and I'm, I'm really heavy into the Bible now. Uh, in at Rankin County, I, you know, I was in the prayer circles every night, and I started ministering to people and telling my story there. And um, then I get moved to Lamar County to answer for the probation charge. So they revoked my probation, so there came another charge. So then I go from there, I go to quick bed. And uh, now I'm in a straight-up pr uh, prison situation with gang members, drug addicts, uh, murderers, child molesters. And I'm surrounded by them. It's like 180 of us in a room. Now I'm being tested, really, because there's drugs everywhere. My rackmate below, you know, he was using meth every chance he could get his hands on. Now it was offered, and I politely declined. I stayed in my lane. I minded my business, and I kept my face in the Bible like God, had, you know, commanded me to. Yeah, something Josh brought up the the other day when we were doing this originally, and and I totally agree that it it aggravates people like us that weren't completely. Your story is God took it away from you, and you never had a taste for it again. Never, I have no and, feeling whatsoever. For and it. there's so many people out there that had that same exact experience, but people like Josh and I, who uh, our addiction was sex and pornography. Um, that's not our case. You know, it's it's right there in front of us all the time, and it's something that we think about all the time and have to fight off all the time, no matter how much we pray. And, and what I liked about what Josh said was um, he referred back to Paul. Uh, we don't know what, what the thorn in Paul's side was, but there was something 
there was something that Paul called a thorn in his side, and he always had it. And so for people like Josh and I, our thorn in our side is that that lust, that sex, that porn addiction. Like um, as Josh told us the other night, you know, uh, most people that have this type of addiction can't just mindlessly scroll through Facebook or mm-hmm. TikTok or anything because there's so many images out there. The temptation. That, yeah, it just it just tempts us and yeah. and um, and that you know that uh, uh, another generational curse that that uh, I was blessed with by Satan himself was when I was 15 from my uncle. You know, I, I stumbled across his uh, his trunk of porn. He had a big trunk of porn. You got to understand, this was back in the 90s. This was all VHS tapes and magazines. Right. Instantly hooked on that. Right. You know, I mean, I was introduced to that, you know, rooting through his stuff. And, uh, you know, I can honestly say that God did not deliver me from everything. I also suffered, you know, with the sex addiction, the sex addiction, the lust, and the porn addiction, and still do. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know... Um, it's hard. It's a daily battle. I mean, it is. It's a daily battle, especially for men. And, you know, with the methamphetamine and other certain other drugs, you know, that just intensifies it because it's so euphoric and, uh, and you know, it amplifies it. So I wasn't delivered from everything, but well, I was delivered from all, all of the drugs. Yeah. That's, so know. that's, you know, yeah. John and I uh, drove together to Meridian to record the podcast originally and... Um, that's one of the things that we talked yeah. about is mm-hmm. the fact that like um, God didn't take away everything, mm-hmm. but He took away the hard stuff. Yeah, the, the, the stuff the, that was probably going to kill. That me. was going <laughs> to kill you. Well, and, and look, I, you know, I put a lot of thought into that conversation. I wish I'm glad. I'm really kind of, and this might be why we had to redo the podcast. But the the thing is, is when God, you know, God doesn't deliver everybody like that for a reason. Okay, but He does deliver some people like that, and I think it's so that we can be you know beacons of light and hope for the ones that are struggling through it and that's why we share our testimonies and like well if he, if, if god and jesus and the holy spirit can deliver him then i can ask for deliverance too and i can be delivered from it right. you know you know guys like us and women like us that that have, have gone through that darkness and that addiction um that do make it out and recover you know we you know we give people hope and, you know, that's why I'm sitting in front of you today. That's why I talk, you know, that's why I go to these di- different churches and recovery meetings and share as, as much of my story as I possibly can because it, even if it's just one person uh, listening right now or in that in that crowd that hears it and, you know, can identify with it and see, that's why God did what he did for me by setting me in prison. It was, it was like I said, it was like a training period for me to uh, really focus on his face and the cross and right. what he did for us and what he did for me so that I can go back into that darkness and, and, and help him pull people out. Yeah, and I like how Josh brought, brought up the other day, too, that um, as much as somebody like me and him, we it aggravates us that we still struggle with these thoughts and, mm-hmm. and the images and stuff like that. It also reminds us where we were. Exactly. And and that's something I don't think either one of us would ever want to. In fact, he said that. Uh, I, I would never want to completely get rid of it because I don't want to forget where I came from. I don't want this to just be a story. Yeah. You know, and and I think so many times when we're so far removed from our um addiction and our you know, our dark side. Yeah. Um it's easy to just 
be able to just walk in, in that just become a story. Yes, mm-hmm. it's we know it's our testimony, but after a while, it's 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 no it doesn't feel like a testimony anymore. It just feels kind of like a story. The fact that we still struggle and the you know pretty girl walks by and you you, you know you gotta you, you gotta keep yourself from mm-hmm. looking you yeah. know because you don't want those thoughts to to exactly. enter your mind or or a picture pops up on Facebook and you gotta immediately get off or or whatever um, the case may be so that you're not focused on what used to be or you know what is still your addiction but you've overcome mm-hmm. it's almost like it's okay mm-hmm. it's okay that, that we still struggle with that because we're still able to relate yeah. it's not it's not still a as big of an issue as it used to be mm-hmm. clearly mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's something we can still relate with people and we can still have conversations and and we can still feel how they feel mm-hmm. you know what I mean like um, th- these conversations are great to have because we still feel the same way you know mm-hmm. we still we still struggle with certain things well you know we're flawed I mean we're, we're yeah. human we're flawed we're flawed human we're gonna wake up every day in sin right we gotta remember to pick up the cross though and carry that cross and you know uh, we have to remember to repent I you know I repent every day before I even commit sin right. you know I mean it's it, it's a it's, it's part of the lifestyle when you're walking with Christ I mean you just stand in the word and and, uh, and, and praying as much as possible and and you know like I said I, I mean I stumble, um, right. we stumble, we all stumble. Right. It's just it's just important to remember that God's going to have mercy and grace. Right. And you know, um, you know, while I was in prison, when I was really starting to study the Bible, I started learning things. And you know, it's been some. The Word is breathed by God. I mean, he'll, that's how He talks to us. You know. Um, yeah, it's so amazing to me that yeah, that each amazing. and every day you could read the same verse and, and every day and get meaning, something completely you know, something different completely from it, different. just depending on what yeah. you're going through. And uh, so, while I was in prison, I started praying for for eyes to see what He sees and for ears to hear what He hears and His wisdom and knowledge and understanding and because uh, I wanted to understand all of this. And so He started revealing to me things like uh, I was really down and depressed in prison at one point because the holidays were coming around and uh, all these guys were getting letters and money on their books to buy all this extra stuff and all this and and I didn't have that I mean my friend my best friend Jenny you know she was putting money on the books when she could she was keeping uh, money on the phone so I could talk to her almost every day she was giving me updates and things like that but I got really depressed because in my mind I was like okay so when I get out of prison okay I've got Jesus now Um, but you know that that physical um, experience of love that that uh, you know everybody yearns for. I, I I didn't understand how I was going to get that back. So he reveal, revealed to me that as long as you're obedient and you're in my will and you stay faithful and you trust me, I'm going to return to you everything that the enemy took away from you. That's right. All those years that the locusts ate. For a couple of years before all that happened, I I had nothing. I mean, I'd lost everything years prior to. Like, uh, when my relationship ended with Jenny, when that ended, that's where the spiral started where I lost everything. So, I mean, I lost all the vehicles, the family. Um, I had uh, I had a job in Alaska that I was making about $200,000 a year at as a chef. You know, I had, I, I had multiple jobs making buku money throughout all those years. But uh, when it spiraled out after I lost Jenny and I lost the family and I burned all those bridges with everybody, um, you know that that it, that was a couple year gap. Yeah, that, that's when, that, you, that's you, when you ended up on the street, right? Yeah. So I mean, I I before my encounter with Jesus, I'd already lost everything for a couple years now. 
All right, so these are years that I'm talking about that the locust took. I mean, there's many, many years. Right. But um, but when he told me that, I couldn't wrap my my mind around how he was going to return a family to me, because Amanda was dead. You know, uh, my parents. Uh, you know, I, and just so I'm gonna let y'all. Uh, I do have an older sister. Um, that that was that's very lost in addiction. I had no idea where she was, so I couldn't find her. And I, you know, was looking. Uh, but anyway, so I didn't understand that. I didn't understand uh, that I at the, I was serving a God of possible, you know. All right, so while I'm in prison, another thing God spoke to me, uh, it would be in the quiet in the middle of the night, and these names would come to me of people that he wanted me to reconnect with, okay? One of them was my pastor from when I was a child, Jamie Crawford. One of them was Micah Mayfield, your your guitarist. I'd known Micah for about 25, 30 years, but I had no idea what was going on in his life. Right. I hadn't seen him in a couple decades, and why would he pop up in my head like that? I'd known him, I mean, I'd known him since I was about eight or nine years old. Our fathers uh, taught us t-ball, and, you know, we were very close, and then I moved, and, you know, we yeah, bumped but, into each other. We were both clearly, in, you didn't know that, yeah, that he had already I'd, given his life to Christ, yeah, and his no life idea. had changed, and had no idea but god's just telling at this point god's just telling you giving you names yeah, and, and his name dropping yeah name yeah. dropping right, that says hey I want you to see. yeah when you get out i, I need you to i need mm-hmm. you to contact these people because these clearly these people are going to help you you yes. know old pastor an old friend justin yates was another one he, uh, he was lost in addiction with me toward the end before you know we uh, i guess it was about three months before i got a prison I, I hadn't even seen him and i barely even knew the guy Right. Like I was only around him for a couple of weeks, so I had no, uh, I had no ad- address to parole out to. You know, if you don't have an address to parole out to, you go on this kind of a waiting list. You might be in prison an extra six months waiting for a room to open up in a halfway house. Right. A lot of guys go through that. The Holy Spirit did not want me to go through that. So, my best friend X, Jenny, and her boyfriend were kind enough to give me an address to parole out to. I prayed about it, and going into it this time. Uh, I, I wasn't as uh, upset about the situation. I accepted it, right. and I accepted the fact that she had moved on, and and uh, at least in this capacity, she's still in my life because I loved her so much, and I know she still cared and loved about me. She worried about me, right? And she wanted to help. Yeah, she was your friend. Yeah, she's friend, my friend and family when you needed it. Yes, and to this day, she is my best friend, and we just know each other so well. You know? Right. But um, so I parole I parole out to her house and uh i fire my face up facebook up you know and i go searching for justin i find him he he shows up about three days later and he has not left yet (laughs) (laughs) no this guy uh it turns out at the same time that i was i had my encounter and went into prison and he had no idea what had happened to me and uh, i was in my sobriety well it turns out that at the same time he got sober at the same time that blew my mind. I was like, that's all Holy Spirit, you right. know? And there's a reason why he's putting us together. Right. Then I uh, I sent Micah a message. I said, man, I don't know what you got going on in your life, but the Holy Spirit moved in me to get in contact with you. But you want to get together and have some lunch or something, some dinner, whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. He didn't get into great detail about anything, but... And uh, I did call my pastor, Jamie, and we've talked several times since I got out. And um, few, uh, I'm, I'm attending Word of Life at this point every Sunday. I'm not going to any kind of celebrate recovery or meetings or anything. At this point, I've been sober for about a year, almost a year, and I was good. Right. I had no, I mean, I'd been in situations since I got out of prison where I was around old friends, so to speak, that 
had a, uh, would have a pipe in their ashtray right there, slap full of dope, and I'm kind of trying to minister to them, and I have absolutely, you would, you know, think that that temptation is there. Right. And but was, for you, there was, you know, God I, taken away that. It was gone. There was no desire. No desire whatsoever. So, I, I know what's coming next. I, I know somebody invites you to CR, and you're yes. like, and you're like, why do I need celebrate recovery? Yeah. I'm recovered. I'm good, right? Yeah, but I got the Holy Spirit. I mean, my I'm, my favorite part of the the CR part of your story is the fact that this is where family comes back in. Yes, yes. So walk us through who yes. who who calls you up and says, let's go to CR. Jeff Evans. Okay. Jeff Evans was a friend of my uncle's. Uh, way back three decades ago that I worked with when I was a teenager. And I remembered him kind of, and he remembered me kind of, but I don't know how we ended up Facebook friends, but we did. And, you know, some I started seeing his posts about, you know, things that was going on good in his life. And I would post things, and he started messaging me. He was like, man, I'm sharing my testimony at the Foundry, blah, blah, blah. you got to come check it out. So I agreed. And uh, at this time, you know, I don't have a car. So he comes and picks me and Justin up. And uh, we go to the foundry. And, uh, man, I got a new addiction, bro. It's, it's, I, lo- I mean, I, I loved every second of it. I loved the praise, the worship, the testimony, the classes afterward. I really knew that I had to be a part of this. And the reason why I knew that and, uh, and I knew that I was where I was supposed to be was when, I, when we got there, I got out of the car and w- we found this white feather right in front of the parking spot. And I took that as a sign. This is where you're supposed to be. And that white feather, f- feather is still in my Bible to this day, you know. Awesome. I, so we walk in and, I, you know, I meet Ian, Jake, Amanda. You know, Jeff's introducing me to everybody. And, and so there were a couple of people there from the church. You know, it was Jake and Ian. They invited me to attend the, uh, the, wor- the the service the next morning and I agreed and um, well we got there and uh, I walk in the door and the first person I see is Micah Mayfield <laughs> <laughs> that's God at work he, oh, I mean yeah. he already told you to contact him you have contacted yeah. each other but you haven't set a date on, uh-uh. on when to like hang out but you know, you go to celebrate recovery at, uh-huh. at Foundry Church on Saturday night. You're invited Sunday morning to come mm-hmm. come back to do some service or, you know, uh, witness the service and, mm-hmm. and all that. And there my buddy Micah is. There's Micah. <laughs> Man, we uh, I sat with him. We talked, you know, the whole before and after. And uh, we got caught up. And, and, now, and, and now we talk almost every day, text messages. I mean, I see him all the time. I, I go to the Giving Grace events when I can. And that's my brother, man. He's my brother. Love that dude. I mean, I love him with all my heart and soul, bro. Got a great heart, and he loves Jesus just like I do. So as we wrap up here, we've discussed a lot of the story, right? So Mm -hmm. now we're at a point in our lives where we realize we need Celebrate Recovery. Yes. Um, We found Foundry to be a great church. Mm -hmm. Um, You you do end up coming to the point uh, to hang out with us. Yes. Um, But just like you said, God told you point blank. I'm going to give you back sevenfold of what the enemy took for, from mm-hmm. you. Before you went to prison, you had stuff. So tell us, what what did God give back to you? Okay, so I've been out of prison for about 15 or 16 months. At about the marker of a year from being out of prison, in one year's time, he's given me the biggest loving family that I could ever imagine. He gave me back a business that started from nothing. When I came out of prison, I had nothing. I had no vehicle, no tools, no nothing. Now I have a couple vehicles, a couple work vehicles, trailers, all the tools you can imagine to do any job that 
I mean, I was having to turn down work from lack of tools and then just a couple of days later the tools would fall in my lap and all this was given to me i mean i paid a, a, a very small amount for any of this stuff friendships were, were uh, bridges were rebuilt that i thought in a million years would never be able to be rebuilt it restored uh the most important thing that he restored to me was my relationship with my daughter yes. after five years of not seeing her uh, i was reunited with her at christmas and I can tell you that the most rewarding thing out of my, all of my recovery and everything that I went through and I put people through, that is the most rewarding thing is building that relationship back with my daughter. Because and at that point, how old was she? Now she is 17. Um, I, she, had, she was, uh, I think, 12 or 13 the last time I'd seen her. Right. But when, so when you reconnected with her, at Christmas, how old was she? 17. 17. Yeah. So you got this beautiful 17-year-old daughter that you hadn't seen in five or six years, mm-hmm. hadn't been able to talk to, mm-hmm. and you feel like there's no way, like I have no family left. There's no mm-hmm. way I'm going to be able to reconnect with this child mm-hmm. because of all the things that I've done. But not only did God give you an amazing family through Celebrate Recovery, mm-hmm. uh, through Foundry Church, now the Point Church, mm-hmm. but you've also rekindled relationship with your child yes and so our good friend eddie Poole does a thing called night of hope yes which is absolutely amazing we could do a whole podcast on night of hope and but, we should and we should but let's talk about the latest night of hope okay because this awesome daughter of yours got to go yes um i'd been inviting her to come i wasn't exactly 100 sure she was coming until she showed up and she walked in the door and I was just so happy. I was so proud. I mean, I, I mean, I, I know I was gleaming and, um, uh, we talked for a minute. I had to get back uh, behind the desk and I said, you know, save me a seat. I'll be in there. So I go inside and, uh, they kick off night of hope. And, uh, after the first song I go up on stage, uh, we had just lost a, uh, lost a black sheep that didn't make it out of addiction. So I was doing a, doing a, a moment of silence with Zach and Shane. And uh, when I come off the stage, I went to her. She was crying. You know, there were tears of joy. And I was like, you know, I don't know what made me say, what's wrong? I mean, there was obviously nothing wrong, but I said, what's wrong? Are you okay? And she- uh, well, That's the daddy in yeah. you. Yeah. And she said, oh, I'm just so proud of you. I mean, I'm just so proud of you. And uh, that, that I knew in that moment right then and there that, I mean, God, but God. But God. I mean, the God of possible. I mean, make the impossible possible, and and I gave her a big hug, and she uh, she stayed, and we took a couple pictures together, and it's now my favorite picture in the world, and I cherish it, and you know she's a very busy girl, you know she's 17, she's That's got right. a job, and you know other thing, all this stuff going on, but um, she does, you know when she can, she'll stop by, and we'll have, you know have a little bite to eat or something, and. And uh, we text a lot all the time, and she lets me know she lets me know what's going on in her life, and she knows what's going on in mine. You know, <laughs> she sees me. I mean, I post all the time. You know, recovery right. stuff, and you know, she don't. She's not a very social media kind of person, which I'm glad. God's promises are true, man. God has restored to me not only everything that the enemy took away, but I mean, like you said, sevenfold. I signed a lease on this house last year, but I mean, I'm renting, but it was the first time I was able to do that in sure. several years, you know, that I, I mean, it's my home. Right. So he restored the home, the business, the, I mean, the provision he provides is crazy. I mean, the relationship with my daughter, the relationship with Jenny, the, the, the family, 
the family. But I didn't know at the time, you know, exactly how he was going to do that, considering they were all dead. But that's not what he meant by that. He gave me a huge family that I know I can call on if I'm ever in a bind or if I need prayer or if I need anything. Right. You know, it's in, and, I'm, I've, and my daughter's right. I've never, this is the happiest point in my 45 years in my life that um, I, I've never been happier. The thing is, is I have to be obedient. Right. I have to trust him. I have to be faithful. I, I have, I mean, it, it is at a cost. Right. You know, uh, God, I, w- I just want, I just want to make sure I get this point across that God is, God is the God of possible. And right. if you are faithful and you are obedient and you are in his will, he will restore everything to you. And I'm living proof. I have to point out the fact that you use the term black sheep. Yes. So tell me, either in your words or the Bible verse that you have for it or whatever the case may be, tell me what is black sheep to you? Because that's something y'all talked about the other night when uh, we first did this podcast. And I've kind of overlooked it and left it out. And so I apologize. But before we... We wrap up. I definitely want your explanation of uh, what black sheep means to you, why you think you're the black sheep, why you were the black sheep. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, night of uh, from night of hope. You know, y'all lost y'all lost a quote unquote black sheep who did not make it out of addiction. So, just tell our listeners what is black sheep to you. You know, Jesus left the ninety nine to get the one sheep, right? Right. In my mind, it looks like this. There's 99 white sheep that stayed, you know, that were that were good, that were doing what they were supposed to do. And there's that one black one <laughs> there was that, that, you know, wants to go do what he wants to do. Right. You know, go his own way and this, that, and the other. So I picture this black sheep then got, then got off the path and has wandered off and has got stuck in some barbed wire fence and can't get out. Right. That's how I pictured my life, you know? Right. And then Jesus comes along, the shepherd, and untangles all that barbed wire, gets him loose, and carries him back over his shoulders, dancing a jig all the way back to the other 99. Well, for about a full week before Easter, um, I kept having the, the words black sheep popping up in my mind. Easter morning, Jim, in his uh, Easter sermon, he uh, preached from the message translation of Isaiah 53, verse 11. He did the whole 53, but he got down to 11 and 12, and it says, Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Talking about him going to the cross. Through what he experienced on the cross, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. We're the righteous ones now. You and me. Anybody listening to this that's come out of addiction, we're living a righteous life. We're being obedient. So he will make many righteousness. As he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly. The best of everything, the highest honors. We're still talking about Jesus, right? Because he is that. Because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. I was the lowest. All of us in addiction were at our, at our lowest, scum of the earth, turning away from him. Jesus had, uh, you know, he caught a lot of flack for hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the thieves. And um, that's what we are, right? you know. 
So because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest, he took on his own shoulders the sins of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. And when Jim said that, I wasn't even following along in my Bible, but when he, he said that, that hit me right in my spirit. I mean, chills talking about it because I knew that I was, it was just confirmation for me that I am a black sheep and I'm proud of it. So yeah. as we wrap up, man, it, one, I know um, at the, the last recording, you gave out your email and you don't like, like that <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you. Because I know you do a lot of CRs, um, you, mm-hmm. you're more than welcome, or you're more than willing to go to any CR that wants to have you speak, uh, give your testimony. Because this is just a small part of your testimony. Sure. And um, so, if you don't want to give out your email, don't give out your email. But how can they find you on 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 Facebook? Just search John Gallagher, and um, you spell that last name for yeah, us. Yeah, sure. Uh, John J O H N Gallagher G A L L. A G H E R, and if you're, you know, if you a mutual friend of Josh Hollingshead, it should come right up, That's and right. Uh, or you can contact Josh or Palmer or anybody through CR. I think I know enough people through CR that I'm pretty easily found. I'll even share my email. It's just a funny name for an email. It's uh, it's it. Junkin John 1977 at gmail.com. <laughs> it's J-U-N-K-I-N-J-O-H-N-1977 at gmail. And uh, I'll go anywhere, you know, as long as I can, you know, as long as I can get there. You know, right. bit, you know. we'll, we'll find a way. Yeah, sure. I mean, so give us a last message. What if somebody's out there listening right now, they have somehow they found this podcast. Mm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they lucked up and got me instead of Josh <laughs> Andrew. Hashtag where's Drew. By the way, <laughs> you're doing an amazing job. If if they found this podcast, they're listening to it, and your story has really touched them and changed, or as as has started to light that fire, light that change in their heart. What is something you would want to say to that black sheep as a last? Like, let me let me just sum this up. Let me just give you this. This is what I want you to know from today. Sometimes darkness can show you the light. Amen. And what that means to me is uh, all that darkness that I went through um, and sometimes I still go through that uh, there is always light, you know, to, to walk toward. Well, John, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. <laughs> me again. It was a pleasure. To do, to do this again. I, th- I think, honestly, uh, no offense, Josh and Drew, but I, I think I, I, I helped push him further and tell more of his story um this episode is going to be a whole lot longer than the than uh the normal episode but that's why we call it special episode amen and uh so man i sure appreciate you being here anytime i love the fact that you're a hug uh, a hug dealer now yeah man part of that hug life see i didn't realize god took that heart of stone from me and gave me that heart of flesh right you know in that period i didn't really want to be touched by anybody i sure didn't want to touch anybody and and (laughs) now i mean it just it just happens. It's like when I see that light on somebody, or I don't, or they don't have that light, or they, you know they got that darkness on them. I just want to hug them. Right. So I mean, I, it's really important to me. And, I, and until somebody pointed it out to me about the hugging, I was like, well, I don't care. It's like, <laughs> you know, don't touch me. But um, no, I, uh, I really should get me a shirt that says Hug Dealer. That's right. You know. Hug Dealer. We got we see so many shirts that say Hope Dealer. Yeah. John's hug. a Hug Dealer. Dopeless Hope Fiend. Dopeless yeah. Hope Fiend. I saw someone wearing a shirt that said that. But anyway, John, I appreciate you sitting down with me and uh, telling me your story again. And um, 
I could not vouch harder for somebody to go tell their story. So if you want to check out John, find him on Facebook. Uh, you can contact Josh Hollingshead mm-hmm. on Facebook. You can contact Drew on Facebook. You can contact Palmer on Facebook. That's me. Kevin Grace is the band that me and me and Mike are a part of. And you can find us on Facebook as well. And uh, with that, I just want to say thank you for tuning in to today's special episode of Unashamed Recovery. I hope you found it helpful and encouraging. And if you're listening and still in the darkness of addiction, we hope that today's testimony will be a lighthouse guiding you out of that pit and into the hope of sobriety and recovery. Want more recovery content? Visit our brand new website, unashamedrecovery.com. For more recovery content, as well as our new sobriety and recovery theme blog to take you deeper into your sobriety and recovery journeys. And that's where you'll also find all the links to all our social media. There you can even donate to the show to help us reach more people still lost in the darkness of addiction. Also, check out more amazing recovery podcasts over at Take 12 Recovery Radio Recovery Podcast Network. The link is in the show notes, as well as under our partners page on the new website. Don't forget, every Sunday we are releasing brand new episodes of the Recovery Minute, a short, encouraging biblical word to help keep you going strong in your daily recovery journey. That's all for this episode. Remember to stay sober and above all else to keep on 12th stepping as you stay unashamed. We love you.